When we think of the persona of an Italian mob boss, it conjures up images of a hardened criminal, a street-tested thug that has literally fought his way to the top with brute strength and a terrifying fortitude. But what happens when the man behind the title falls short of the expectation? A man who, in reality, is brought up in relative prosperity and who rarely, if ever, has to fight for his dinner. A man who rides the coattails of his legendary cousin all the way to the top. A man who seeks to change the very definition of a gangster, from a rough-and-tumble street fighter to a white-collar racketeer and businessman. A man who looks down upon the very types that built the empire upon which he now presides. One man will seek to change the image of his crime family, and he'll seize as much wealth and power as he can squeeze from the soldiers beneath him, while spitting in the face of their conventional Cosa Nostra traditions. From an ivory tower, he will pass his deadly judgment on a peasant class that he dares to defy him. A class that includes the deadly likes of Roy DeMeo and John Gotti. This is the legend of Big Paul Castellano. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Time feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. I actually, uh... I'm not a cigar aficionado, but I hit a cigar on the way here. It was a AJ Fernandez, and yes. I think it made me a little high. So that's my cigar review. <laughs> so it's been a uh, long time. Very long. And as uh, most people know by now, we actually did this show a week before. We don't need to get into it. It could have happened to anybody. <laughs> it could it's been a long time since a successful episode about that. Yeah, it has. Yeah. And uh, a lot of Too things long. have happened. You know, because I don't know how long has it been. It's been a long time. At least a month. Crazy. So uh, we're going to jump in pretty quick. I want to cover a few things that have happened. Uh, oh, by the way, happy birthday, Orlando Spato. It's yeah. today. Happy birthday. It's uh, December 17th. Yeah, it's December 17th when we're recording this. This will probably be out in a few days. But uh, that's his birthday. And I think his book just landed like at his offices. He's shipping them out today. I texted him this morning and he said he had the books and stuff and everything's going great. Accidental gangster, baby. Yeah, so that was cool. Yeah. You know, I was uh, out of action for a while. During that time, I met Anthony Cayucci. And uh, if you don't know Anthony Cayucci, he's uh you got to get on like Instagram or especially YouTube. He's got a great YouTube channel. He's a he's a guy down in South Florida. Back in the day, he was with the Colombian cartel and uh, he's just got great stories. He never was a made guy cuz he kind of floated between different uh, families and stuff, but uh, uh he wrote a book called Made Man. It's out right now. You got to get that. This guy's stories are unbelievable, and uh, you got to check out his YouTube. I wouldn't shine you on. When he tells a story, you are gripped. Just the craziest, wildest stuff, you know, and none of it's in the book. So he's like, you know, screw you. Think I'm going to give you something from the book? No way. You know, so you got to get that. But the book has got to be unbelievable. I've got mine on the way. That's that's always for real. While I was on hiatus, I get this text from him out of the blue. I, and it's like, it's I can't remember the gist. It was basically, call me. We have a friend in common. Something like that. So I call him. I can't even remember what we're talking about because I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm talking to him on the phone and stuff. And God knows what we were talking about. But like right after that, this kid from India calls. 
Oh, yeah. And he wants to uh, interview me, right? Yeah. And I'm like, why? So we're trying to hash that out and stuff. And uh, he's like, well, I do this thing in India. And do you want to do it? And blah, blah, blah. And uh, Regina, my daughter, she's nine. She's watching this. And she's like, what's going on? I go, oh, I don't know, man. This this guy wants to interview me. She goes, Google him. Make sure he's not a jerk. <laughs> it's like, hey, good advice. So I think his name was Cy. And uh, so I Googled him. And he does a bunch of interviews and stuff. And he's a nice kid. So I did it. You know, and I think probably like, Nobody in India knew us, and now at least like a dozen people in India know who we are, right? Yeah. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh! We did the uh, Roy DeMeo show, right? Yes. Yeah, we yes. did. Which, yeah. Was, which I thought was an awesome show and everything. Right after we do it, I get a text from Roy Bill Cotolo Jr., <laughs> right? And if you you should know who he is if you're listening to this show, but uh, if you hadn't, he's the son of Wild Bill. They were in the Colombo family during the Colombo family wars. And uh Well, this is a great story. Yeah, it's a yeah. great story and uh, I'm not going to tell the whole thing tonight, but uh basically he was in some rough stuff with the Colombos and they ended up killing his dad in what was amounting to a, a just a dick move, really. And uh a heartbreaking story, didn't have it coming. And uh, his dad was a was a ruthless guy and a tough gangster, and he was the real deal. What happened to him was wrong. But anyway, that's not the story. I got a, a text from him, and he's telling me a story. And I said, hey, man, do you mind if I read it? He's like, nah, go ahead. So uh, I'm going to read the story just as he uh, sent it to me. And I wish I could have got it on the Roy DeMeo, but like I said, it came right after. So I, I was thinking, no big deal. I'll have it on a week later. <laughs> Little did I know. Life. Yeah. So here it is. Hey, my brother, when we were kids, we would ride around on our bikes looking for other kids' bikes to rob. But one day in 81 to 83, we stopped our bikes in front of the Gemini. It was fucking hot. We didn't have hydro flasks back then. My friends and I were afraid to go in. Roy was outside at times, so I went in and asked the bartender for a glass of water. He looked at me with a smirk as if to say, I can't believe this kid just walked in here. To be straight up honest, I had no idea that it was he that the stories that were floating around were about him. Then two guys walked in I thought were brothers, and they looked familiar to me. I knew I'd seen them talking to my father by the house. It was Joey Testa. They recognized me because my father introduced them to me. I was 11 to 12. What the fuck did I know? So as Joey puts his hands on my shoulders, and he says to Roy, You know who this kid is? Roy looks at me with a scowl that he always wore. This is Wild Bill's son. All of a sudden, Roy's face lit up with a smile. First, I was like, who the fuck is Wild Bill? It was the first time I'd heard somebody refer to my dad as Wild Bill. Roy then comes over, puts his hands on my shoulders and says, you tell your dad that Roy by the gem sends his love. Please don't forget. When I got back home for dinner, I tell my dad. He literally looked at me and said, Willie, what the fuck were you doing over there? I said, I was thirsty. He then smirked and just said, well, Willie, it's a bar where men hang out. It's not for kids. You stay outside the joint. If you see Roy again, and yes, he and Joey are good friends of mine, you can say that you told me and just say, my dad sends his love. After that, I stopped in for water every weekend. Bike riding, not scheming. Have a beautiful weekend, brother, Bill. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Bill, for that. That was awesome. Just to get that was uh, cool. I love this kind of stuff. And a lot of people send me stuff, and, and I love it, and I'll work it in anytime I can. And I uh, really appreciate that. That was more than cool. So we got some mob news. Uh, Philly in the news. Go Eagles. 
Yeah, all I can say. yeah. And so, news in Philly is yes. going to be read by Ree. So, in the news, federal prosecutors charge 15 alleged Philly mobsters with racketeering. Alleged. Yes, alleged. Drug dealing and extortion. The Philly mob has limped along on life support for the past decade. Its former leaders, Joseph Uncle Joe Legambi, did I say that right? And Joseph Skinny Joe Merlino, out of the picture after high-profile federal prosecutions. But reports of La Cosa Nostra's demise have been greatly exaggerated, according to a federal grand jury indictment unsealed Monday by U.S. Attorney William M. McSwain. Not Italian. In fact, the mafia was adding new soldiers to its ranks as recently as 2015, prosecutors say, in ceremonies overseen by veterans of those former regimes. Fifteen mobsters have been indicted on racketeering, extortion, gambling, and drug trafficking charges, according to the indictment. Chief among them is Stephen Stevie Mazzoni, 56, the reputed underboss of the organization who once served under Legambi. So now I want you to say the 14 other defenders include... Okay. The 14 other defendants include Joseph Joey Electric Servidio, 60, Louis Louis Sheep Beretta, 56, Daniel Cozy Castelli, 67, and Anthony Tony Meatballs. Ollie Jafali. Tony Meatballs. Tony Meatballs. <laughs> I'd like to know how all these guys got their nickname. They don't even know. All 15 defendants are due to appear in front of U.S. District Judge R. Barkley Surik on January 8th, according to court documents. So okay, that's so who what's knew? new in Philly. Yeah, the Philly mob was alive and well. Okay, but now they're dead. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. And then in other news. In other news, an alleged mobster pleaded guilty Wednesday to assaulting the husband of Housewives of New Jersey star Dina Manzo. John Perna, 43, of Cedar Grove, New Jersey, admitted to planning and attacking David Canton outside a strip mall in July of 2015. Canton was not named in a press release by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey. Perna was enlisted by Manzo's ex-husband, Thomas Manzo, to assault Canton and leave a permanent facial scar, according to prosecutors and an indictment. Perna was a member of one of New York City's most notorious organized crime groups, the Lucchese Crime Family, authorities said. The indictment says that Perna, armed with a club known as the Slapjack, and an unidentified member of his crew followed Canton to a strip mall in Passaic County and attacked him in the parking lot. Less than a month after the attack, Perna had his wedding at Thomas Manzo's venue for a fraction of the price he would otherwise have paid, the press release states. Was it a strip mall or a strip club? Just be honest with me. <laughs> Just be honest. Could have been a strip club at a strip mall. Could have been. I was talking to a buddy of mine and I, as this was going on, and we didn't get the whole story yet. It was on, so I'm jabbering as we're listening, you know, and I'm like, why would someone from the Lucchese get violent for this housewife, you know? And he reminded me, he's like, Bill, I've seen you get violent for a stale bologna sandwich. You know, so. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Of course I'd get in a right. fight over a stale reality star. But you, uh, you used a slap. The slap, slapstick, right? Yeah, do you know the slapjack? Slap I don't know if you know what that is. I no. do know. I do. It's a. I'm sure you do. It's a leather pouch, and it's got a handle on it. You can still get them, and uh, you can get nice ones now, right? But it's Amazon? a leather pouch. It's like a pocket. Imagine that, and it you snaps over. 
I don't have one, but I know what they are. I've seen them. And uh, there's a lead. You can put, like, lead in there. There's anything heavy, right? And so you kind of swing it around, and you can just whack somebody, and you can do some serious damage. Uh, you can break somebody's jaw with it. And stuff. Sounds like nunchucks. Yeah, I had one a long time ago, and you could take, like, a, a coconut. And if you just take your hand back and you got a good swing, it would break the coconut in half. That's how hard they hit. Jeez. So it's pretty good. Wow. And also the scar on the face kind of goes back to, um, remember, oh, I think it was your Spato episode when I was saying it's hard to make an impression on people. Because I'm like, you kick their ass. And a month later, they're like, ah, screw him. He's no big deal and stuff. So I guarantee you cut his face. So every time he looks in the mirror, he remembers what he did and he doesn't forget you. So anyway, there's that. Welcome back to another episode of Partners in Crime. I am still Bill Crooks, just a normal guy, no one to worry about, but I am sharing the room with some pretty shady characters. To my right, he once shot a man just for snoring too loud. He's one of the most dangerous narrators in the business. He is Zach the Zip Griffith. You know, my goal one day, be compared to Morgan Freeman. (laughs) In terms of narrating. Not going to happen. Oh, yeah. What about... uh, What's his name? He was a false of doom in Conan. James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. That's who you want to be. Yeah. Remember? For who is your father Darth if it Vader. is not I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he was Darth Vader. Okay. James Earl Jones. You know Wilt Chamberlain was in that movie? No, he was like in Conan 2. What? Yeah, one of them. That sucked. Well, probably because he was in it. Yeah, that movie sucked. <laughs> no, I remember that. Yeah, that was a horrible movie. And across the table, speaking of dangerous, I'm pretty sure she poisoned Brett Sexton to get on this show. She was with us on the Genovese and did a spectacular job. It is Anne-Marie Giuliano. Hello. Glad to be back. Thank you for having me. And as we all know, Joshua the intern has better things to do these days. Uh, He'll be back, but he's doing extracurricular school activities, things like that. Kids today have no priorities. Shame. Shame on him. All right, let's get started. Constantino Paul Castellano is born in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn in 1915 to Italian immigrants Giuseppe and Conchetta Castellano. His parents have immigrated to the U.S. only years before. Described as middle class, Giuseppe is a butcher and an early member of the Mangano crime family, which will eventually become the Gambino family. He works in the numbers rackets, selling illegal lottery tickets to Italian immigrants. The profits from the numbers game are important to the underground, as they facilitate expansion into more lucrative endeavors. You're going to be shocked by this. Paul Castellano is going to school, but isn't much of an academic. By the time he reaches 8th grade, he drops out to become an apprentice butcher to his father. He also helps his father with the lottery racket, getting his first look at the street life of a gangster. Seeing both the legitimate and illegitimate sides of business, it doesn't take Paul long to figure out that crime pays. Paul is growing up in the height of prohibition, and it's not long before he begins crossing paths with his up-and-comer cousin, Carlo Gambino. And Carlo Gambino is kind of a different story. We uh, talk about these guys a lot, and it's always they were born in poverty, they grew up on the street, and they had to fight their way up to the top, and it was like a desperation move and stuff. Carlo's a little different. He was a big deal in Sicily. 
his parents were a part of the mafia there, and uh, we've covered this kind of stuff a lot. Mussolini's driving everybody out. So his parents pay a hefty sum to get him smuggled on a ship. He's special even on the ship. You know, he's special cargo coming across. And I heard one story where they said when the boat came in, and you got to remember, like, Anastasia was a worker or a stowaway, and he jumped off and made his way to the harbor and worked yeah, the docks and stuff. something crazy. Yeah. yeah. Carlo Gambino walks off in an expensive suit. He's 19, right? Just struts off the thing. He's a big deal. And his people are waiting for him, who are the Castellano family, who are connected. And he's basically ushered off the boat, and everybody knows right away this kid's going to be in the mob. He's going to be a big deal. Kind of, a, He's got the pedigree going way back, and uh, this was him from the beginning to the end. In 1934, Castellano is 19 and has already developed a gangster persona. He still works for his father as a butcher, along with his other less noble pursuits. This gives Paul more financial resources than most young men his age, and he's seen about town in the expensive Italian suits that the big players are wearing at that time. He stands at 6 feet 2 inches tall, an impressive height that earns him the nickname Big Paul. I think this would be like 6'7 today. Yeah, he's a giant by Italian standards. Yeah. Like most of the guys we're talking about are 5'7", five, 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, Spotto's short, you know? Yeah, these guys are all small, so I don't, I don't know what the hell happened to him. But he's, <laughs> he's corn-fed, and he's, uh, he's towering over these guys. Grew so. up in a butcher shop. You know, he ate well. Yeah. In July of 34, Castellano was arrested for the first time. He and two friends are on their way to a party in Connecticut, when they decide to stop at a men's clothing store along the way. Reportedly, his friends have staked out the joint and convinced Paul that robbing the place is not only a good score, but easy as taking candy from a baby. Buying in, Paul brandishes a pistol and walks directly to the store owner, relieving the merchant of 51 bucks, almost a grand in today's economy. Castellano rifles through the cash registers, only to discover that there is no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. Apparently not hurting anyone at the store, the three hoodlums make their getaway in a car that still has its license plate secured to the rear. Rookie mistake! The plates are seen and reported, and by the time that Paul Castellano returns to his home in New York, the police are waiting to arrest him. So he gets home and the cops drag him in. You know, they've been waiting for him to get back and stuff. <laughs> and of course, the shop owner and everybody said there were three guys involved, so they're sweating him for that. And uh, this is one of the great things about Paul Castellano. He doesn't talk. You know, he said he picked up some hitchhikers. He doesn't know their names. And he had, they had nothing to do with it. It was all on him. And uh, so he does the time. Perhaps one of the only things I like about Paul Castellano is uh, he doesn't talk. He's not a rat. You know, going off all the pictures I've seen of Paul, I imagine the, his face when the police are talking to him is just like this. <laughs> the straight Very phase. stoic. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, Zach, that plays really well on radio. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys could see it, we do this a lot. Some, somebody said that. Uh, someone texted me once, and they go, "You know, one of my favorite parts is when you show a picture to Zach. You know, that that plays really well." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, it's not all about you, Dick." That's right. <laughs> Sometimes we want to talk amongst ourselves. Right. But uh, it sounds like a, a kind of a boob robbery and stuff, but I, I was kind of remembering, I, you know, the, what was it, $51 back then? Yeah, it would have been 1000 today. Yeah, I knew a couple guys that robbed a lender store for less than 50 bucks with a BB gun and, like, took off in an orange dart. 
<laughs> that they parked about a block away at the guy's mom's house. <laughs> so there have been worse robberies. Yes. And yes, they were caught in about 10 minutes. Yeah, it didn't take long. But you're right. This is where he started to build his reputation. He didn't rat these guys out. It's the story of the mob, the respect. Yeah, they, they had ingrained that in him. So he was a gangster to that to that level. Castellano is sentenced to a year in prison, but in the end only has to do about three months. You heard that right? Three months. When he returns home, he finds that he has become a local hero. He also gets the attention of his cousin Carlo, who immediately decides that Paul is the kind of man he wants in his organization. By this time, Carlo Gambino is making his mark in the underworld. He has the Midas touch in racketeering and is making the Mangano crime family a lot of money. When he's promoted to capo, he brings his cousin along to join his crew. Although Gambino is not afraid to get his hands dirty, he has different plans for his cousin Paul. He introduces Paul to the business side of organized crime, and together they refine and expand their rackets, particularly in the gambling venues. Their bond is further solidified when Castellano marries Gambino's sister-in-law, Nina Mano. They like to marry within the family. We forgot to mention earlier that uh, Carlo is married to Paul's sister. Yeah, it's not in a Kentucky kind of way. No, but they were first cousins. <laughs> Apologies to our Kentucky listeners. His Gam- Carlo's wife is his first cousin. Well, no, you're making it sound sick. It's his sister's <laughs> kid. <laughs> My bad. Just want to apologize to My Big bad. Blue Nation in Kentucky. I'm well, sorry. Nina, Nina's been his girlfriend since childhood, right? The couple ended up with three sons, Paul, Philip, and Joseph, and a daughter named Constance. This is what I was talking about here. Oh yeah, he's got a nephew who is an act. Let's see, Richard Salvatore Castellano, and he was in a movie called The Godfather. Uh-huh. Clemenza. It's not like. I was shocked. It's not like he was some bit part. He played Clemenza, one of Vito's childhood friends. It wasn't like he was some throwaway, you know, like like they were trying to get Johnny Fontaine in the movie. It's not like he was that. Yeah, so he was, yeah. He was one of the ones at the table when they were eating spaghetti. He gave, yeah, in the second one, he gave yeah. Michael the gun to kill uh, McCluskey. Yeah, Clemenza was part of the story from the beginning when he was like the poor kid in Little Italy. Yeah. Yeah, he's a big part of the story. Unbelievable. That's why I was so shocked that they didn't even put two and two together, you know? Castellano. Didn't even think of it. By the 40s, Paul Castellano was a father of four and putting the lessons learned from his cousin to good use. He developed several legitimate businesses, like the successful meat distribution company called Blue Ribbon Meats. Castellano brings a new way of thinking to conventional racketeering. When a butcher shop debtor to his loan sharking operations cannot pay his vig, he goes a different way than his contemporaries. Rather than resort to a physical warning, he simply takes a piece of their business. In this manner, Castellano finds himself to be a highly diversified businessman. Behind the scenes of the underworld, things are also working to Paul Castellano's favor. A former capo by the name of Albert Anastasia has murdered his way to the top of the Mangano family. He promotes Carlo Gambino as his underboss, who in turn promotes Castellano to the position of capo. And now, obviously, as we know, if you listen to our episode two, uh, or even uh, the Genovese episode, right? Genovese kind of gets a bug in uh, Gambino's ear, and he's not satisfied being number two for very long. So on October 25th, 1957, 
Anastasia's murdered in the barber shop. He was laid back covered in towels, which uh, probably worked out kind of nice because they were going to need some towels when the guys came in and they uh, lit him up and stuff. So check out that episode if you haven't. Castellano's ambitious cousin becomes the head of the Mangano family, albeit by default, and brings him up right along with him. Meanwhile, leadership has changed over at the Luciano crime family when Vito Genovese convinces Frank Costello to retire by hiring Vinny the Chin Giganti to put a bullet to his head. The attempt is non-lethal, but effective nonetheless. These two events lead to the Appalachian meeting on November 14, 1957. Oh... This is a, just a... a <laughs> this makes you question. An estimated 100 mafiosi from the U.S., Italy, and Cuba attend this meeting in the same place. The main areas of discussion are to center around distribution of the Anastasia rackets and to legitimize the new leadership of Vito Genovese. Carlo Gambino decides to bring Paul Castellano along to this important gathering, which is a strong indication of his rise in stature. Yeah, Paul was uh, 42 years old, definitely one of the you know youngest gangsters in the house. And uh, you got to remember, nobody got busted on this level before, right? And they usually have a meeting like this once every five years yeah. or so. They just had one two years ago. So normally this would have never happened, but it's kind of the Wild West right now, right? Genovese is taking things by storm. Gambino's oh, taking things. Things that Luciano set up to commission so they wouldn't happen were happening. It's 1957. Did we not learn anything about the setup at Pearl Harbor and how that didn't work out, having all of our shit together in the Pacific? Well, that's a stretch. (laughs) I don't think so. You know, they really could have used Zoom back then. They could have just Zoomed this meeting. (laughs) Yeah, they could. (laughs) Paul Castellano has sent a Zoom link. But, you know, this is a huge affair. They've got, like, uh, 50,000 pounds of pork chop, tons of cases and cases of all kinds of booze and stuff like that. I don't think the number of people that showed up for this party were really necessary. I give you... I can guarantee, uh, you know, Castellano didn't need to be there, right? So if they'd have scaled it down a little bit, I think it wouldn't have uh, have happened. But you know how it works. Somebody sends out a text, there's a party. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) You need the heads of the families... And maybe the underbosses, too? Maybe. Yeah. That's that's all you need, you know? And a bunch of women. That's all you need. Yeah. 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 Maybe a bodyguard, maybe. Although we've learned they don't do much. As covered in the Genovese episode, the meeting gets raided like a high school grad party, with mobsters hauling ass into the woods in their expensive but muddied suits. Tons of wise guys get hauled in, and one of them is Castellano. Upon interrogation, Paul tows the party line, telling the police that he is only there out of concern for a sick friend. Nobody buys it, and he ends up in the slammer again, this time for five years on a conspiracy charge. But you guessed it, after only seven months, his conviction is overturned and he is consequently released. Having refused to cooperate with authorities once again, Paul Castellano has further bolstered his mob reputation as a stand-up guy. Yeah, and he's not doing a lot of time. I would imagine that there's some politics involved where, of course, they can get him out, but it's like, hey, let me arrest him for a little bit of time, then he comes out. I don't have any uh, proof to that, but it's just the way he does time, it just makes sense that he's getting out pretty quick. And we saw how they scrambled to get Carmine out of uh, 
you know, in the Carmine Galani episode. Mm-hmm. They scrambled to get him out of what, a speeding ticket? Yeah, n- nothing. nothing. Yeah. It was yeah. like practically the governor was over there, you know, all representing him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm wondering, I'm assuming Dewey was out of office by the 60s. But I'm wondering if he had like any remnants from his time in the DA's office that were still there. What do you mean? Like he stole the pencil sharpener or something? <laughs> like he had he had some people under his tutelage and like, I don't know. Yeah, Some protege is still working. It's a good there. point. I bet he did have a you know have his hand in the pot a little bit because like even when Frank Costello retired, you know we know from Spotto he was still setting up shop and restaurants and people would go to him for yeah. advice and to settle things and stuff. So even he was out of the game and but not really. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if Dewey maybe had an influence. What the hell was wrong with Dewey? What was up his ass? <laughs> he was going after him. Man, who hurt him? <laughs> I'm refraining from commenting about who was up his ass. Yeah, we don't we do not do that. It's a, it's a family show. <laughs> As the 60s roll in, Carlo Gambino is at the very top of his game. The Mangano family now bears his name, and it boasts 250 made men and over 500 associates. Paul Castellano is reaping the benefits of his cousin's underworld success and is learning to master legitimate businesses as well. Particularly, Castellano is killing it in the poultry market. His mid-sized Blue Ribbon Meats is now called Dialed Meat Purveyors Incorporated. Initially, the poultry market is extremely competitive, but Paul Castellano uses his mob and union strong-arm tactics to force retail outlets to sell his product. It's said that he corners 70% of the market at one point. As Castellano becomes more powerful in the Gambino family, he begins to acquire assets in the construction trades. His son, Philip, is the president of a company called the Scara Mix Concrete Corporation. Scara Mix pretty much has a monopoly on Staten Island projects. Paul also handles the Gambino interest in the Concrete Club, a group of contractors selected by the commission to handle all contracts over $2 million and less than $15 million. The Teamsters Union Local Chapter 282, which provides the workers to pour concrete at all major New York construction projects, is also under the supervision of Paul Castellano. And we kind of touched on that in the uh, Tony Ducks. Yeah, right, yeah. And I was saying uh, in that Fear City, when they're showing you the wiretaps and stuff, they've got them on there talking about the concrete contract, and uh, they're telling them, like, that $2 million sweet spot, you know, he's like, hey, you're doing a good job, keep it going and stuff. Hey, listen, you get over $2 million, you come to me, you don't take a bid over $2 million. Mm -hmm. And he's really stressing that. And the guy's like, he goes, I mean it. Over $2 million, that's when you come to me. You don't do shit <laughs> until you come to me. Because uh, all the families are splitting this up, and there's ranges that you can make money, and there's times when you got to step off. Although Paul Castellano considers himself a white-collar criminal, he possesses a dark side beneath his dapper exterior. In 1975, Gambino associate Vito Borelli is in a relationship with the daughter of Paul and has made numerous disparaging remarks about Castellano. I question the IQ of some of these guys. One or more of these remarks makes it to the ears of Castellano, and he decides to punch Vito's ticket. The Bananos are brought into the plot through Salvatore Catalano, then serving as that family's acting boss on behalf of the imprisoned Philip Rastelli. At this time, the Bananos are on the outs with the majority of the leadership in the other New York families. The commission has recently issued an edict forbidding them from inducting new members, a ban that will last until 1984. 
The Borelli hit is viewed as an opportunity by Catalano, who summons family captains Joseph Messino and Dominic Napolitano and relays the order, stressing the importance of the Bonanno family gaining allies. Borelli is contacted by Bonanno soldier Anthony Rabito and lured to the warehouse of Rabito's cookie shop at 308 East 53rd Street in Midtown Manhattan, where he's shot to death by John Gotti and Joseph Watts. Gotti is of course an acting captain of the Gambinos, and Watts is an associate used in multiple Castellano-ordered hits. Joseph Messino, Dominic Napolitano, and others are positioned around the block as lookouts. So, was this like Gotti's coming out party, or was he known? It seems like he was known by then, if he's an acting captain. Right, and when they say Gotti hit him, he didn't necessarily pull the trigger. It just means he was involved. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've seen uh, Sammy the Bull on record as saying he doesn't know personally firsthand that Gotti ever pulled the trigger. Mm. Yeah, he's perfectly capable of it, but he yeah. couldn't He couldn't say for sure that Gotti ever pulled the trigger on anyone. I mean, if, if, they, if John Gotti invites you to a cookie shop. Hey, man, you like cookies? Uh, I'll stick with my chips ahoy I've got here. No, uh, no, you gotta come. I got a cookie. <laughs> I got a fucking cookie. You gotta, you gotta come over. All right. I don't know. So Borelli's thinking about. It. He's like, I don't know <laughs> if I should bring milk. <laughs> you think they have milk? Earlier in the day, a stolen panel truck is provided to Bonanno associate Salvatore Vitali and Gambino soldier John Carneglia and left park outside the cookie shop for use in hauling the body after the fact. Later that evening, Vitali receives a phone call from Messino. The truck won't start. Vitali drives into Manhattan and, after his attempt to start the truck is also unsuccessful, offers his own car for use. The body is placed in the trunk and Vitali, accompanied by Frank DeChico, delivers it to a location in Queens. A second group is assembled there. Among them, Gambino's soldier Roy DeMeo. From there, the body is dismembered, of course, and disposed of in Brooklyn's Fountain Avenue dump, which has become a regular haunt for DeMeo. So uh, we threw this in. This is kind of the legend of what happened to Borelli. As I'm reading this, a few things didn't set right with me. First of all, the guy's a nobody as far as I can tell. I mean, he's dating Constance or whatever. Why do you need the Bananos and John Gotti, the Gambinos, <laughs> then freaking Roy DeMeo? It's like all the king's horses and all the king's men. It's like a party to kill this guy. <laughs> and it, it didn't make sense to me. One of the things I always think of, we don't know the entanglements. Like, it seems like an easy hit now. Maybe he's somebody's cousin. Maybe he's somebody's brother. Where they would go outside the family. Maybe, you know? And uh, you would go to the Bananos because, A, he wouldn't see it coming. It's an outside job, right? Also, say it goes wrong, which apparently it went very wrong. Somehow they pulled it off. People get pinched, and they're going to ask them, like, who's, who ordered the hit? Who did this? Who did that, right? Well, they're not going to say shit because they don't know shit. They're bananos, you know? They don't know anything about Paul Castellano, what's going on. So that would be a reason that you would go out. But then you bring Gotti back in, so you're right back to your family, right? And, you know, the uh, Gambinos are kind of split, so you went with the, the Gotti side, and then you go across town and get Roy DeMeo. 
it just the whole thing didn't sit right to me, you know. <laughs> so I put out a couple feelers. I asked uh, Kaiuchi, I asked Ori Spada, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, and Ori's so great, man. As soon as I ask him, he's like, ah, let me make a few calls, you know. And uh, he gets back, but he's like, yeah, Bill, it, it sounds like bullshit. He goes, I don't see why you would need the bananos to do this, you know. And he's like, also understand when they say Castellano ordered the hit. You know, and that's when I went back and got in that he used a captain, and he did. Because he's like, no way Castellano orders a hit on somebody. It doesn't work like that. He gets an underboss or a capo. There's a chain of command that goes. He goes, Castellano's never going to say, hey, go kill this guy. It's never going to happen that way. So I went back, and sure enough, he's right. There is a chain of command that was followed. Uh, I asked Kyochi, and he kind of had a different take. He's like, yeah, I see your point. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes you never know why. You know, he goes, but stupid shit happens, and maybe it made sense at the time. Who the fuck knows? So he's like, yeah, I see your point, but don't rule it out, you know? Uh, The thing that rings true is a lot of the details. And uh, where the story comes from originally is some guy gets busted, and he's this is what he's given up. Right, so that makes me think bullshit. But the thing, like with the truck and the car, and it just sounds so real, you know, like the truck wouldn't start. And then, like, yeah. instead of just going to plan B, someone goes over, like, I'll get it started. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Yep, you're right, it won't start. You know, that kind of shit <laughs> seems real to me, you know, because there are a lot of Keystone cops, kind of. Oh, yeah, you stuff. know, in the Galani stuff, like in his young days, how many freaking things go wrong with him? Oh, a lot, yeah, Jeez, yeah. Also, he mentions that the uh, Bananos were happy to do it because they were in some shit at the time. And this is when you've got Galani and you've got Rastelli and they're fighting for power and they're doing the drugs, which puts them on the outs. It was a bad time for the Bananos. You know, this is when you're going through the banana split and all that stuff. So there's a lot of details in here that make me think that maybe it is true. And uh, then my brain starts going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my gut always says that this is bullshit. This is an informed story. And it, it didn't go down quite like this. But like I said, it's it's the legend and it's there. So I thought we'd throw it in. Could it just be as simple as if I'm Paul, this guy's dating my daughter and he's also bad mouthing me. Time to take him out. Could it be that simple? Yeah, I think it could. It could. Yeah. With him, I think it could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, how dumb can you be? You're dating the boss's daughter, soon to be the boss, and you, you, you're talking, you're talking shit. Yeah, but what I don't think anybody doing? anticipated he was going to be the boss. Right? Not, no, not at this time. But he right. was high up, still, you know. Yeah, he was high enough up that he was friends with Carlo. This isn't Anastasia's daughter. That's scary. Yeah, like people around Anastasia are scared. People around yeah. Galani are scared. People around Castellano, I think they're shit talking him when they're ten feet away. You know, that's just the way it is. He's Big Paul. He's not He's not the scariest guy. That's that's a good point. Castellano's daughter eventually marries a guy named Frank Amato. He originally puts Amato in charge of an Italian ice distribution center. Amato isn't as sharp as Castellano hopes, and the business tanks. According to FBI Special Agent Joseph O'Brien, in a book called Boss of Bosses, the FBI and Paul Castellano, Amato gets put in the butcher shop and dial meat purveyors. Mm. Here he's taught by Castellano's men how to bleach tainted, outdated, uninspected meats or meats of a less than reputable origin by using a white preservative powder known as dynamite that gives the faded, discolored meat a healthy, fresh red appearance. Which they still do today. They add stuff (laughs) to the meats to make them look pink. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) But here you go. 
Frank has also shown how to drain meat of any corrupt juices it has accumulated by using formaldehyde. Mm. They also use counterfeit United States Department of Agriculture stamps to assign meats a false grade or expiration date. Mm -hmm. O'Brien also alleges that Castellano's meat suppliers have a motto and fellow butchers carve meat and label it as beef that is not always carved from cows and pork that is not always carved from pigs. This is particularly disturbing given his close relationships to the shenanigans of the DeMeo crew. Yeah, it is a little uh, disconcerting. <laughs> it's just one reason. <laughs> and I want to be clear. I don't want to defame this organization. I'm not saying that they were eating no, people. defame them, Bill. I'm not saying that they weren't eating people. <laughs> and the juices weren't <laughs> But a, a, a cool thing is uh, I was listening to an interview with uh, Michael Frantese. And uh, he's talking about the uh, some of the scary times in his life. One of them was a sit-down with Paul Castellano because he owns some kind of deli. And he's got this thing going, and uh, he needs a bunch of chicken. And he's being told that he has to buy chicken from Castellano, which is kind of what we were saying. 70% of the people have to buy it. Yeah. Right? So they deliver the things. He puts them in a fridge. The next day, they're going to serve these chicken. They are rancid with maggots. So Michael's saying... they. Calls him up and says, hey, come get your meat. You know, this is rancid. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? You know, and he's like, yeah, there's maggots in them, man. You need to come get this shit. I'm not paying for it, right? And it's like, back then, I don't know, it's $250 worth of, worth of poultry, right? And the guy is a captain. He's going nuts. Like, you, you need to pay your bill and you take your chicken, you know? And Michael's like, screw you. I'm not paying for this chicken and stuff. And tells him to go F himself, right? So Castellano gets hot. Because Michael has disrespected... Michael's not a made guy at this point. He's disrespected his capo and stuff. This ends up in a sit-down. And, of course, Michael can't go to a sit-down. He's got to get his you know, yeah, right. his boss with him. It's this whole big thing. And he said, man, Paul was just, like, nuts, like, going off. Like, it was, it was getting ugly and stuff. And uh, they had to work it out. But uh, eventually, Michael didn't have to pay for the meat. And it was agreed that he would continue to buy meat from them. Right. And that's how it finally got worked out. But uh, it was kind of cool because when he was telling it, I'm like, hey, I know exactly when and how this was going down. But, yeah, it just goes into what that guy was saying, man. This is like they're selling you shit with maggots in it, right. telling you that you're going to buy it. You're going to take this human meat, Michael. <laughs> you're going to like it. Yeah, if this doesn't make you go vegan, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what will. In 1976, Carlo Gambino is facing serious health issues, perhaps related to the meat, and turns to his trusted cousin to take over things temporarily. As things worsen for Gambino, he's forced to choose a successor. Although it's known throughout the Gambino family that there is a strong bond between the cousins, it's nevertheless expected that an underboss named Anilo Delacroce is the heir apparent. According to Ralph Salerno, a former NYPD detective, when Carlo Gambino died, if I'd been asked to place a $10 wager as to who would be his successor, I would have put 10 on the man who was his underboss, Anilo Delacroach, a tough man. Of all the gangsters that I've met personally, and I've met dozens of them in all my years, there were only two who, when I looked them straight in the eyes, I decided I wouldn't want them personally mad at me. Anilo Delacroach was one, and Carmine Galani was the other. They had bad eyes, I mean, they had the eyes of killers. You looked at Delacroach's eyes and you could see how frightening they were. The frigid glare of a killer. 
Carlo Gambino does the unexpected, however, and upon his deathbed, appoints his cousin Castellano as the new boss of the Gambino family. Apparently, Gambino prefers to trust his enterprise to the business-savvy acumen of Paul Castellano over the streetwise sensibilities of Delacroach. So obviously, Delacroach doesn't appreciate the decision, and he's an interesting character. I know they compare him to Galani, but he's different in a key way. He's every bit as mean and psycho as Galani was, but he's got this adherence to the rules of the mob, and he stays in line, which I don't think Galani had that, right? No. Galani's just like, I gotta kill everybody and put myself at the top. That's the problem here. But uh, Delacroach, you know, he came up through Anastasia and was not at all happy how the Gambino took out Anastasia. He, that's not the way it's done. Delacroach would never take power that way. That's not how he does things, right? So even though he does not respect Paul, you know, can't believe he got picked over and he's stuff. He's a company man. He's a company man. He's like, hey, and he's got a lot of respect for Carlo Gambino. Yeah. Even on his deathbed, he's like, if that's what he wants, that's what he gets and stuff. Now, he's got under him guys like John Gotti, hotheads, who would just as soon put a bullet in Paul as, as take any you know, direction from them or, or respect their leadership. But they do respect the LaCroche. So he keeps everybody in line. I think some millennials could learn from that business model and uh, become company men. Why, because uh, millennials are running around shooting people? No, they just quit because they're pussy. <laughs> but you, it's the mob. You can't quit. Exactly. The millennials aren't all bad. I mean, you can work with them, right? Aren't Zach and Brett millennials? No. We are... Gen Xers? Gen X, yeah. No, I'm Gen X. Gen Z. We might be Gen Z. Yeah, you're Gen Z. Gen Z. Okay. I just know we're not millennials. That's all I know. All I know is millennials want a freaking participation trophy. I showed up to work most of the time. Most of the time it was on time. But now I need some counseling. I need to be able to bring my therapy cow. <laughs> you can delete all this. <laughs> I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Memoirs of an ex-HR. Apologies to anyone with a therapy cow. But, yeah. In the end, Delacroach accepts his former boss's decision and ensures that all of his men fall in line. With this concession, Paul Castellano is the official boss of the Gambino family. To ensure a united front, he invites Delacroach to continue as his underboss, a proposal the hardened gangster accepts. Although an internal war is averted, there is still a lot of resentment in the Delacroach crew, who continues to feel that Paul Castellano is not a real gangster. Acutely aware of his precarious position, Castellano needs an enforcement arm to protect his status. With this in mind, he warms up to the idea of Roy DeMeo. DeMeo has been brought up by Anthony Gaggi, and he runs a group of homicidal maniacs known as the DeMeo Crew. They are the most vicious killing machine the underworld has seen since Albert Anastasia's Murder Incorporated. The DeMeo Crew is the very antithesis of the kind of outfit Castellano envisions for himself, but they are a necessary evil that he must learn to live with, for now at least. As Roy DeMeo continues to earn and to solve problems for Castellano, Anthony Gaggi begins to push for DeMeo's button. Castellano resists this move as long as possible, but when DeMeo forges an extremely profitable alliance with an Irish gang called the Westies, he finally relents. DeMeo becomes a made man in the Gambino family. The Westies are looking for Gambino protection from the rest of the five families, 
Their leader, James Coonan, comes to an agreement with Big Paul during a meeting where Westies member Mickey Featherstone, what a name, along with everyone else in the room, heeds this advice from Castellano. You guys gotta stop acting like cowboys, acting wild. You're gonna be with us now. If anyone is gonna get killed, you have to clear it with us. Shortly after the meeting, Castellano allies the family with a local American mob death squad, minoring in heroin, importing, and exporting. The Cherry Hill Gambinos. With this addition, Big Paul has amassed some of the most dangerous and lethal killers imaginable, attempting to insulate himself from external and internal threats alike, while also sending a clear message. The Gambinos are not to be trifled with. Castellano quickly puts his newfound hit team to work in 1979, effectively ordering the slaying of James Eppolito and his son, James Jr. Eppolito has come to Paul recently, complaining about how Gaji has been infringing on his territory. He further accuses the DeMeo crew of dealing narcotics, which is punishable by death. When Eppolito requests permission from the boss to take out Gaji, he doesn't receive a definite answer. Sooner rather than later, though, his answer comes in the form of Gaji and DeMeo, who snuff out the Eppolito bloodline for good. So we covered this in the DeMeo episode, but things don't go as well as, as, as they hope. They're all in a car together, po- possibly lured in by a cookie. But the Eppolitos <laughs> are basically in the front, and uh, you know, Gaji and DeMeo are in the back, probably heading to the Gemini or something, when uh, something finally clicks and they realize that, uh, oh crap, I don't think this is a good car ride. They end up having to roll down the windows and fire the shots because if they fired the shots, you know, it's going to be deafening. So they got to crack the window a little bit. They shoot the guys, but it goes south because as luck would have it, a cabbie's going by. The cabbie hears the shots. The cabbie's driven by an off-duty police officer. The chase ensues and uh, it's it's the Wild West and uh, Gaji actually takes a bullet upside his head. Uh, DeMeo gets away somehow. Gaji gets arrested and eventually indicted and convicted of this. You can't make it up. No, it it is. It's like, I just picture Mo Curly and whatever the other stooge was. And them doing this crap. Well, yeah, and more importantly, it's a glaring example of the hypocrisy of the Cosa Nostra. These guys, the soldiers, are living and dying by these rules. They're buying into this bullshit. And Castellano's saying, no drugs. You know, just like Carlos said, no drugs. And... They go to report the drugs because they're being wronged, <laughs> and it's, yeah. it costs them their lives. Yeah. These are made guys. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's just, you know, it's a bunch of bullshit. And it really lends credibility when Spado and Cayuchi and these guys go, nah, better off not being made. Seems like it. You know, being made at some point went from being protected to living your life with your hands tied. All right, here we get some major uh, Carlo vibes from The Godfather. It's all—it's almost eerie how, how similar it is. Frank Amato, Castellano's former son-in-law, was the next notable hit carried out by Castellano's squad of mercenaries. Amato had physically assaulted Connie Castellano during their marriage. Not willing to let bygones be bygones, Castellano's fatherly impulses lead to none other than Roy DeMeo dismembering Amato and giving him a not-so-proper burial at sea. 
So Frank is working at Castellano's meat places, you know, typical son-in-law jobs, and he just keeps stepping in it. He's hitting on female employees in front of Castellano men like Gaggi, you know, and Gaggi's reporting every misstep of Amato. So at first they're trying things like uh, firing the women that he flirts with, and uh, then he gets busted in in an all-out adultery. So at some point, Connie suffers a miscarriage, and it's the last straw for Big Paul. He's convinced that Amato's bad behavior caused the death of his grandchild, and now his fate is sealed. So we can pretty much deduce how this murder went down. We know how DeMeo operates, right? But uh, there's absolutely no concrete proof, and Connie ends up moving to Florida for a time, and uh, it seems like she's just cursed, but then she ends up married to alleged mob associate Joseph Catalanati. So he's a stand-up guy, and as far as I can tell, as of 2011, they were still married with uh, several children. But I'm good with what I oh, did. Yeah. Do. yeah no, I don't know if, if that's... No problems. What that says about my character. With killing Amato? Yeah. If he beat the shit out of her and caused a miscarriage, I mean, A, he didn't beat the shit out of her once. He did it multiple right. times, probably. And the disrespect to the boss. Like Absolutely. I said, it, it's, it's, but he's right. It's like the Godfather, right down to Connie. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is. Yes. I guess maybe he didn't see the Godfather. No, I guess he must have missed that one. But I don't yeah. think he would. But remember, he was slapping Connie around and oh, stuff. Yeah. And it's like, it's the Godfather's He took his stuff. belt off and beat the shit out right. of him. Right, and once he did it because he wanted to bring Sonny. But he was doing it before that, you know, when Sonny bit his knuckles on the rail and kicked his ass in the street and all that and stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's like a life following fiction. Frank Amato, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. I don't know what else to call you. Yeah, because, so. I mean, really, you're... Just unfortunate that you married into this family, but you never beat your wife. You never kill your baby. And this man just, maybe his death was, it was a mercy killing. It was too nice. Well, we don't know how it went down. In a best case scenario, he went to the gym and I had a drink, got shot in the head. They wrapped a towel around him, hung him in a shower and cut him up. I don't remember any stories where DeMeo actually tortured somebody. Well, I wonder if Paul came, because this was a little more personal to him. Maybe he came and watched or something. Yeah. There's no concrete proof. Maybe he ended up in concrete. Maybe that's why there's no concrete proof. Exactly. That's. I thought it was a pun. The scary mix guys showed up. Yeah. <laughs> I know where to get some concrete. He knows where to get some concrete. <laughs> At the time, you couldn't cremate Catholics. Not that these guys were following religious canon law. It's big business. <laughs> but I'm just thinking if you had access to a crematorium... They've got the Italian guys at the dump. That's all they did was they just took him to the dump, and it was pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah, and didn't we cover crematoriums already where I say it's not as simple as just you can't keep burning people up? We did because of the the uh, gas meter. Yeah, yeah you're uh, right. Why do I have to keep going over this? <laughs> i got to remember this. <laughs> you can't just burn the entire world, Ray. <laughs> keep telling you. <laughs> My bad. I've got to learn. By the late 70s, things are going very well for Castellano. Both his legitimate and illegitimate businesses are bringing in millions. His concrete interests are so powerful that he virtually had no competition in the booming Manhattan construction projects. It's said that the mob's parasitic tentacles in the construction business make New York's costs the highest in the country. That's no surprise. You know, at some point they have to run out of real estate, right? In Manhattan. Because it's only so so big, you know. They gotta run out of 
But they just knock buildings down and redo it. Yeah, it's constantly being revamped and stuff. Man. There's so much money. That's, I mean, that they can be a parasite like this and go undetected for as long as they did. Yeah. There's so much money in the world, it's hard to wrap your head around. Of course, with all of the dissension among his ranks, Big Paul would do well to keep his enormous successes low-key, but he doesn't. His first move as boss is to build a $3.5 million mansion, about $12.5 million today. It boasts enormous columns across the front, and Castellano dubs it the White House. It rests on the highest part of Staten Island, highlighted by 17 rooms, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, a lavish English garden, and a terrific view of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. The lavish expenditure does little to endear himself to an already disgruntled faction of the Gambino family. Man, do yourselves a favor, look up this house. It is literally the White House in, in Staten Island. Yeah, it's gorgeous. You chastise your guys for getting into the drug trade. You're like, brings unwanted attention. We don't want it. And then you go and build this house. <laughs> but he thought he was legit. Yeah, that's the thing. He's got enough legit things going on that he can do this and without tax evasion. That wasn't one of his problems. He's got all these different companies and diversifications that he's rich. Yeah. Right? So what's the difference between, like, they know you have $20, $30 million, but you really have $200 million, you know? <laughs> well, here's, here's some trivia that I don't know if you guys knew. This neighborhood that he built the house in, it's called Tot Hill, T-O-D-T. Oh, you're yeah. going yeah. to like this, Bill. It's Staten like Island. And it is literally right next door to Emerson Hills, which... That is where the house that Michael Corleone. Had oh yeah, I did see that. I did see too, that which was yeah. which sold last year. Yeah. And if I'd have known, I'd have bid on it. But um. Man, I thought you were gonna say it was the origin of the hot toddy, and I was gonna be like, that is a nugget. <laughs> but that'd be a great tourist attraction because you could go out on the lake. I'm pretty sure that was my grandmother's kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I used to, we used to always have a cough when we got to her house so we could have a hot toddy. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. I do. <laughs> and our mother used to get so pissed. But that, Michael's house would be a good tourist attraction. I mean, you could, well, and you that's could take the boat the out on the lake and shoot Fredo. And, but that's know. part of the problem is it is a tourist attraction and people are going in these private neighborhoods and, and driving by and. There's cameras up. There's security. I like, though, how we went from the Todd neighborhood to uh, Con and Grandma had us some free whiskey. (laughs) We did. As soon as we'd walk in her house, we're like seven, six, and seven. (laughs) I thought we went down a perpendicular road, but she wrapped it right back around, and we're back in the neighborhood of Todd. That was good. That was well done. Every Italian had that cough. (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) <laughs> Joshua, the intern's gonna be like, <clears throat> I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> we know that, right? As the 80s roll around, Big Paul also decides he needs a raise. He declares that he wants everyone in his organization to pay 15% of their take. It's a 5% increase from what they're used to paying. For a man who's already raking in a fortune, the move seems like an extremely petty and greedy one. Sammy the Bull Gravano had an interesting perspective on this. Now I'm supposed to be a racketeer. Paul wants me to be a racketeer. But I'm still a gangster in my heart. I'm a gangster in every inch of my body. 
I don't only own this club, but I'm every effing thing in it, in the middle of everything. Paul don't know what that is. He never went through major hard times. He started out as a butcher in his father's shop and they started branching out. He was extremely wealthy right off. He was a captain for like a hundred years. He was a captain under Anastasia. He never knew what it was really like to go out and rob. What it was like when I would come home and look at my wife and have to say, Deb, what's the matter? And it'd be that the landlord had called again. Son of a bitch! 300 is due on the rent and I couldn't pay it. I gotta figure out what I can do. I don't want to take out another effing loan because I know sooner or later with all these loans that I'm gonna have to rob again to pay them off. That's the cycle you get into. Paul has no idea what it's like to break open the piggy bank of one of your kids to eat. What we would eat was that effing pasta with ricotta night after night. It's not that I didn't like it, but every effing night. I remember I'd come home and say, no more ricotta, please. Deb would say, no, tonight I made the pasta with garlic and oil. And I'd say, oh boy, that's good, that's great. You know what I mean? Paul never knew what that was like. Well, first of all, why is she buying fucking ricotta? That's going to be a more expensive cheese. She should have just moved to the Midwest. <laughs> Critiquing uh, the cooking? Now? I'm not going to sit here while you disrespect Deb. That They're on a tight budget. I know. So why are you buying ricotta? Forget that. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe she gets it free because she's freaking Sam of the Bull's wife. But at this point. I'm like, glad she stuck to it, though. You know, that was like uh, watching Goodfellas on basic cable. Forget that. They cleaned it up. <laughs> Sammy's uh, Sammy's running a bar. He, I think he's still at the Colombos during a lot of that. You know, and then he shifted over to the Gambinos, which is a different story. But the Gambino brought him in because it was, I can't remember who he ran a bar with, but one of them was Carlo Gambino's nephew, and he was a jackass. And uh, nobody wanted to, to be dealing with him, so they brought in Sammy as a partner because they knew Sammy would only handle a little bit of his bullshit. But anyway, I digress. Sammy's running this place with his uh, buddy, and they are, like, doing the dishes. They're running this thing, and it's like a 24-7 job. They got a cot in the back. They're playing poker games and stuff. And these guys roll in, like, 4 in the morning, want to play cards all night. you got to stay and do it. And this is the kind of crap that Sammy's doing at the time, you know, making his bones. And, uh, yeah, he's suffering. And he's got a good point. Paul Paul never did this, you know. The other thing is, do you remember like Dutch Schultz when he tried to jack everybody up and how bad it mm-hmm. worked? So where is your history lesson, you know? And it just seemed like he didn't, you know, this, this road's been gone down before. I don't know why he is getting stupid. Where it seemed like Paul was making a lot of good decisions up to bringing Delacroach in as an underboss. And then it just stopped. He became an idiot. You it know? could just be as simple as him thinking... I don't know why he would think this way, but like, look, I'm the boss. So I'm going to up the up the prices, and that's all there is to it. And then nobody's going to argue with me because I'm the boss. Even though there's plenty of evidence, like you said, that, <laughs> that can flip on him really quick. Well, it I didn't work for s- Dutch Schultz, and Castellano is no Dutch Schultz. <laughs> you know? And he's got to pay for this house now. Or maybe in your yeah, own head, you have. think you are a gangster, you know? That's what I'm saying. He probably just thought nobody's gonna mess, nobody's gonna argue with this because I'm I'm living I'm living in the White House. Nobody's gonna argue. But you think in his head he's going like, yeah, me, Gotti, DeMeo, we're the same. We're all the same. Does he think that? <laughs> yes, he does. Well, he's he's remiss. That's part know. of the. I think he does think that. That's why he's behaving the way he is. 
Things aren't going well in Castellano's personal life, as he reportedly suffers through an extremely strained marriage. He and his wife Nina have taken separate rooms, and it's said that there was an overwhelming sense of tension between the two. Hmm. Things get worse when Nina decides to hire a young Colombian immigrant named Gloria Olarte to serve as a housekeeper to the lavish mansion. An affair ensues, and before long it is said that Big Paul invests more time in his personal relationship and allows his business interests to go neglected. I think if Nina wanted to throw a hot young girl at Castellano, she could have picked better. I don't think that was her intention. <laughs> yeah, because you said you looked her Gloria up, and she was not a looker, according to She's them. not a, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with her. I mean, she's a normal person. She's not a ringer, what I would call a ringer to, to suck him in. Gloria's still alive, right? Yeah, I think she is. Yeah. Sorry, Gloria. Obviously, with his questionable stature, it's difficult for Big Paul to keep control of his men, especially when it comes to drug dealing. Carlo Gambino had believed that drugs, despite their potential for large sums of cash, were ultimately bad for business. The political climate would bring too much heat on their activities. Better, he figured, to focus on their otherwise low-profile crimes that were plenty lucrative. Paul carried on with this philosophy, decreeing that anyone who sold drugs cannot become a made man. He further warned that anyone caught dealing drugs would be killed. Behind the scenes, however, he accepted huge sums of drug money profits while feigning ignorance to the source of this income. The exception to this rule seemed to be John Gotti. Despite building up the Gambinos as the top family in New York, Castellano's biggest threat is still coming from within his organization. John Gotti's grandeur and ambition are beginning to slip into Paul's consciousness, leading Castellano to remind his crews that anyone dealing in drugs will be swiftly dealt with, a threat he knows will be heard by Gotti, whose hands are filthy in the drug trade. Castellano's wife slowly begins to resemble the reclusive one of Howard Hughes. Aside from capturing his urine in mason jars and letting his personal hygiene plummet to unfathomable levels, Big Paul is as much of a shut-in as his aviator counterpart was near the end of his life. Castellano will rarely leave his house and only takes meetings with certain capos, giving out orders and receiving information this way. The usually well-dressed Paul can now only be found in velvet slippers and silken satin nightwear. For a crew that already views him as too soft, his reputation in the Gambino family is rapidly declining. Yeah, but you have to imagine the Gambinos, Capos, having to deliver huge bags of money up to the White House. They're driving through the iron gates of the stately manor. When they finally get into the house, there's Paul just lounging around in a silk bedroom gown, velvet robe, and his dumbass little slippers. He clearly doesn't have his finger on the pulse of mob culture, right? These guys do not respect him at all, particularly for a man following in the footsteps of the great Carlo Gambino. Look, I respect Paul. As a man who also wears slippers, I respect Paul for doing this. But look, sometimes you can even get away with wearing them to like Walmart. But like you, you are wearing these when guys are driving up to deliver your money. This is like it's not a formal business thing, but like you should, you know. Yeah. I honestly well, think going being barefoot would have been better. And these are showing up in slippers. It's not like he's wearing UGGs. He's wearing... Like slip-ons. Yes. Yeah. I don't even know what an Ugg is. They don't look like slippers. Don't badmouth them, Bill. They're very nice. But it was very brave of Zach to come out of the slipper closet. <laughs> yes, like it he was. Did. 
I've, I've <laughs> worn mine out in public multiple times, and I'll continue to do so. I don't care who sees it. I don't. I don't care. I can vouch for him. He does not care. But when I said you can get away with wearing them to the store, I know from experience. I've done it before. Well, you're not going to be arrested, but people are probably looking at you going, look at this guy. Really? Look, it, I'm, all I'm saying is I'm not going to slam Paul for being comfortable. That's all. Well, I, I can will. see why you wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> if all this was not enough, even more drama is brewing outside the Castellano residence. U.S. Attorney Rudy Giuliani is forming an organized task force to take down the five families armed with the RICO statute. The goal is to tie the heads of the families to the activities of their underlings, who in the past provided an insulation against any top-level prosecutions. The feds found a weak link in Angelo Salvatore Quack Quack Ruggiero. Incredibly, Quack Quack gets his nickname because he can't shut up. <laughs> Which you would think, like, a guy couldn't raise to the level of a capo. You would. That's what I was just thinking. How is this guy alive? Oh, I've heard the taps. Uh, he, he talks endlessly. He's he, just, he just runs on idiot. and on. Idiot. He's a moron. But, again, he's not. He's an earner. He's a respected guy. He's got, like, they talk about only certain people are allowed in Paul's house. He's one of them. You know, it's yeah, he's going there and he's reporting things like um, how much money he could expect to make, the kind of rackets that are going on, and kind of like, uh, even though he doesn't like Paul, he's helping Paul know what to expect, how much money he should be getting, and then he goes, you know, goes away and badmouths him and stuff because he can't shut up. From wiretaps between Ruggiero and John Gotti, law enforcement finally gets a break. These conversations detail the drug trafficking and most of the day-to-day interactions of the Gambino family. Law enforcement literally can't believe how much information they're gathering. The feds have gathered enough to send Ruggiero and Gotti to prison, but that isn't the Gambino soldier's biggest problem. According to Mafia Wiki, Ruggiero would complain about Castellano's high-handed manner. He sneered that Castellano was a, quote, milk drinker and a pansy. He put down Castellano's two sons, who were running Dial Poultry, as, quote, the chicken men and called business advisors that Castellano had around him as, quote, the Jew Club. He referred to Thomas Gambino, who oversaw the family's interest in the garment center, as a, quote, sissy dressmaker. He also conjured up images of Castellano and Bellotti spending evenings together at Tot Hill, quote, whacking off. Nice. Tough beat. <laughs> yeah, tough beat. Tough beat. The feds are able to use the information gathered in their wiretaps to get a court-approved wiretap in the Castellano White House. Through their informants, the members of law enforcement assigned to the Gambino faction know that Big Paul is meeting with his capos at the White House. They further know that the bulk of the discussions are being held in the kitchen. To install the recording device, the team gets creative. First, they periodically scramble the cable TV service to Castellano's residence. Cable TV is a relatively new development, and issues with the service aren't something that will immediately draw suspicion. Paul becomes annoyed with the poor reception to the point that he instructs one of his trusted capos, Bellotti, to call a repairman and take care of it. Naturally, the service call is intercepted by the feds, and they send their undercover officers to perform the repair duties. This is a genius. It is. Genius movie. It's classic. The guys that do this kind of stuff, like I said, they either have brass balls or rocks in their head because they just go into the lion's den and do crazy stuff. So this guy dresses up like the repairman. He's got the van. He's got the tools, all this. He goes in. 
like he's just gonna do a simple call and uh he's doing these bullshit tests walking around and of course you know they got guys on him you know he's not walking around unescorted they're watching everything he does and uh we've covered similar tactics before but he's going around shaking wires doing this and this and the guys in the vans are working in tandem they're listening in and stuff so when he finally gets to the kitchen he starts testing that and they're scrambling the signal right he's like oh this is it you got a loose wire right and he's saying that the wires are behind the cabinets because i guess there's some kind of juncture box and he's like well shit i can't get into this you know this is you need like a carpenter you need cabinet somebody's got to take these out i'm sure as hell not doing it it's getting late blah 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 he's playing it up they're getting pissed and they're like no you got to fix it tonight we're not having people coming in and out of this place paul said to take care of it you know yeah so he's just throwing a fit and a couple more guys i guess come in and they're all helping take off this cabinet which is complete (laughs) bullshit right so sometime when they're doing this, he sticks the bug, like, I think under the table by the television where they talk. And that's how he does it. And he says, like, the whole time he's looking at his watch and, you know, this and that. So they buy it hook, line, and sinker. And, of course, once they get it all back together, the van stops scrambling the signal. It's fixed and uh, everything's great. And they send the guy on his merry way. When it's all said and done, the undercover crew can't believe all the information they're getting. It becomes clear that Big Paul is the head of the Gambinos, that he's calling the shots, and that he can be implicated in all aspects of the criminal activity going on at lower levels. They also establish connections between the five families via a racket in the garment industry. They also learn at some point that Paul is having relations with his maid. One federal agent begins to follow Castellano's mistress around and eventually befriends her. Everybody befriends her. In high school, she must have been voted, like, most likely to be befriended. (laughs) It seems like anyone that's remotely nice to her, you know, she ends up having coffee with or something. And uh, Paul actually knows about it at some point. He's, like, telling people about it and stuff. And uh, uh, there's a story Gravano tells where he goes in one day and uh, Paul's bitching about this. And he's saying, yeah, she's talking to a fed now and she has coffee with him and blah, blah, blah. And Gravano's misreading this. He's taking it like, what, is she like a loose link? You're afraid your maid's talking kind of shit, right? He doesn't know what's going on. And he's like, Paul, you want me to take care of this for you? And he's getting pissed. He goes, I can see the vein in Paul's head, you know, kind of bulging out and stuff. He's getting mad. And they're telling Gravano to shut up and stuff, you know, and he doesn't get it. And they finally explain to him what's going on. And they're like, look, that Cadillac is hers and this, this, and that's more the lady of the house now than the wife and stuff. And Gravano's old school. Like, to him, the family, Paul's the father of the family, and she's the mom of the family. You know, and this shit's serious. So this maid thing, it's funny to us. You know, and it may not even be that culturally irregular, but to him, this was an insult to Nina. He couldn't believe he was carrying on this way. And uh, just his respect for Paul just plummeted even more than it already had been. So it was like unthinkable to him. Not so much now in our culture and stuff. And uh, I don't know, you remember uh, when Marie and I were young, we had housekeepers and stuff. We had we housekeepers. Had cleaning she, ladies. Yeah, like a cleaning lady. Had, same thing. We did not have a live-in housekeeper. <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean, I can vouch firsthand that this kind of thing goes on because you couldn't peel re off this housekeeper lady, the cleaning lady. You and her were going at it all the time. So I can I can vouch. What were we going on about? <laughs> they were like making out and stuff. <laughs> the parallels here. 
cannot be ignored. You live in the White House. Your marriage is in a bad spot. You're sleeping with somebody else. Bill Clinton is eating this up. <laughs> it's true. He may or may not be an intern. <laughs> He's living in the White House, banging the help. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the detective is, is having coffee with her and stuff, but I don't think she ever really gave him anything. I think it petered out, and it became a dead end because she she didn't know anything. I think she was cautious. I think I think it was an it was complete accidental that she even gave up. Hey, he does everything at the kitchen table. She wasn't. Yeah, she's to not privy them. to these conversations. Yeah, she's not stuff, trying yeah. to help them or anything like that. But they pick up on it. Like that's where we're gonna put the bug. Yeah, I don't want to be insensitive, but how good was her English? Pretty good. It was pretty good because it said she was a recent immigrant from Colombia. She was. I mean, I've seen her in interviews, and of course, they're in hindsight. She's looking back and stuff. But uh, she would say, you know, like, ah, he followed me, and at first I was scared because I don't know who he is. And she kind of had like the broken English like that. But it was good. You understand what she's saying. Yeah. Okay. I, I can remember once a guy was saying they were listening in, trying to figure out what the hell was going on in the kitchen, and it took them a while to deduce. It. They're like, "Holy crap, he's banging the maid!" Because <laughs> uh, you know they're they're listening intently, like, "What are they? What's going on?" Like, Someone getting killed. Someone's getting choked. <laughs> During the investigation of Castellano, the covert detectives are also learning about the massive car theft ring of Roy DeMeo. Big Paul is happy to receive the cash-stuffed envelopes that the crew has been delivering regularly, but when Roy reports that one of his men has been pinched, Castellano sours on the relationship. It doesn't take long for him to realize that DeMeo is the only first-hand link to himself. He decides to put an end to DeMeo. The police discover Roy DeMeo's body on his son's birthday. Yeah, that's kind of sad. You know? his, his son does a lot of interviews and stuff, and uh, despite all that happened, you know, people are people, right? And uh, it, it was... It's tough. I hate watching that kind of stuff, you know, because you think about the collateral damage. This is where things get controversial. Castellano wants DeMeo dead, and by most accounts, he goes to John Gotti to do it, and Gotti ducks the job. Now, why does Gotti duck the job? Uh, almost everything I see says Gotti doesn't want anything to do with the DeMeo crew. You know, like, for lack of a better word, he's scared to do it, right? And this is where the Gotti groupies go nuts. Gotti not afraid of anybody. You know, Gotti walks on the sun barefoot, you know, and all this stuff. Whatever. But I'm not disparaging Gotti. You know what I mean? Gotti's tough. You know what I mean? His son's tough as nails, too. Uh, Oh, his son. Yeah, I think he's he's a tough nut. But uh, (laughs) John Jr. To say somebody's scared of the DeMeo crew doesn't mean they're a pussy. It means they got a brain. Right. You know? Right. So, anyway, I, I actually asked a bunch of people, you know, like my usuals and more, like, what do you think? Gotti's scared of DeMeo and stuff? And really, nobody wanted to answer the question, mm-hmm. you know? So nobody wanted to go there and stuff. But there's guys on our Instagram. I kind of tossed it up in the air one time, and, and it was kind of heated, you know? People yeah. were like, God, he's not afraid of anybody. And But one of the, the better points was, I don't think he was scared. I think there's a faction on both sides. You know, they're kind of on either side, but... God, he's smart enough to... Well, no, the God, he's point of view is like screw you i don't like you anyway you just took a 15 percent chisel you know up up five on us and now you want us to kill each other go to hell yeah <laughs> you know and so i'm like you know what there's something to that absolutely but uh 
like I said, and the, and the takes I get mostly when they say Gotti ducked it and Gotti was afraid of the mail and stuff, it comes from police accounts, which a lot of the documentaries and stuff that you'll watch if you're researching this, they're, they're cops' point of views for the most part. You don't trust the cops. I don't trust the cops, yeah. especially when they're talking about people because they got their own little personal shit in. And a lot of times I hear things on accredited documentaries that I know aren't right, and they're coming from a cop's mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, glaring omissions, things like that. And I'm not anti-cop in, in the general sense of things. If somebody's breaking in my house, I'm not calling the mob. I'm calling the cops. <laughs> but when it comes to the FBI and stings and things like that, a lot of times these guys are as bad as the, as the good guys. you know. And in my view, in these neighborhoods, a lot of times, yeah, the cops are the bad guys. You know, you've mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned uh, John Gotti Jr. because please, please, please go watch the 60 Minutes interview with him on YouTube. You will get plenty of laughs like you will laugh way more than you're interested because the way he explains how he lives in this huge mansion in new york i think and the way he explains it away how he got it he's i forget who's interviewed him but she's like you know you've been out of crime for so long you've been in jail where'd you get all this money and he just calmly says my book my book sold it sold very well (laughs) my ass my ass the book paid for this (laughs) What'd you write the eighth Harry Potter book? What what kind of book? That's the same thing Bernie Sanders says. He's so rich because he wrote a book. Wrote a book, you'll have $10 million. (laughs) But uh, there was one where they were talking and they said something like uh, La Cosa Nostra. He goes, so how long in La Cosa Nostra? And he just looks at the guy and goes, you like that? You like the way that sounds? Does that just roll off your tongue? He gets this look where the guy doesn't know what to say. He goes, I don't know a better word to use. He goes, I just call it the street. La Cosa Nostra. And he's mocking the guy. But you get this, like, it's almost like in the Kuklinski interviews where it's all just zipping along. And then all of a sudden you stepped in it. Yeah. And you just want to back away, yeah. you know. But for, yeah. for, forget that. Forget that part. But yeah, in his interviews, there's some good moments and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Again, watch it on YouTube. You'll laugh way more than you think. It's 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 unintentionally funny. The bad marriage in the White House comes to a crescendo. Nina moves out. Paul's flamboyant affair with Gloria is not doing him any favors. He further damages his reputation by confiding in his underlings that he has become impotent and is now using a penile implant. To satisfy his maid. That's like such a Sopranos moment. You know, can't you see Polly and those guys going like, what the hell? <laughs> just like, you know how they just get like, you wouldn't even think about it. And all of a sudden the reaction with them was oh. just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What if this was like the last straw for Gotti? He was like, all right, you got to go. You gotta, <laughs> use an implant, you got to go. He's at a table with the with the families, you know, like the five families, and they're all like, a penal implant. But the chin is like, nah, I don't think that's so bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Act like he's wearing a wire. Let me see. I knew it about the chin. I knew it when he came to that meeting in slippers. <laughs> but that's where they could have put in the secret mic in the implant. Oh, God. Just throwing that out there. All they picked up was uh, Gloria humming some Colombian tune. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We got to move on. In August of 83, law enforcement is ready to take action on the information obtained from the wiretaps of Ruggiero and Gotti. On August 8th, 
Quack Quack and four others are arrested for the distribution of heroin. Damn it, Quack Quack. As Ruggiero's captain, John Gotti now has his ass in a sling. Not only will he be publicly outed for drug dealing, if the Ruggiero wiretaps are released, he is as good as dead. When Big Paul finds out about the arrest, his first move is to suggest Delacroach demote Gotti and his crew. Delacroach stalls and suggests that they wait for the releasing of the evidence before they rush to judgment. Not wanting to start a civil war, Castellano reluctantly agrees. While he's waiting for the Ruggiero case to develop, a case is developing against him. Castellano and nine others are arrested in connection with Roy DeMeo's car theft racket, and all the charges levied against him include car theft, murder, racketeering, prostitution, drug trafficking, and extortion. Despite these problems, in mid-1984, Big Paul is out on bail and still raking in millions. I think he got out on a $2 million bail. The feds are far from content, however pursuing all the families with similar tactics used on the Gambinos. Tactics that lead them to the discovery of a commission meeting in Staten Island. And uh, this was covered in uh, Fear City. They showed surveillance vans outside of a little house taking the photos where they're having a meeting. And it's just a small little house. They're like in a rusty van sitting there with a camera. And not only do they get pictures, the families come out kind of like in an orderly fashion. So it's like... Here come the Lucchese, right? Click, 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 click. A few minutes later, here come the Gambinos. Click, 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 click. And, uh, you know, under Rico, they got them now. You know, this is this is them conspiring and uh, colluding. And uh, they weren't even there talking about all the federal problems that they're having. That's not what the meeting's about. It's about organizing the construction rackets. How do we make the most money? How do we squeeze the most? How do we avoid detection and stuff? You would think with these arrests starting to come, people are starting to think. They still don't know about Rico. They don't understand it. None of that's come down yet. And uh, they're just talking shop. Their business is all they're doing. But you really need to pay attention and look for a rusty old van. Right. And I don't even know necessarily that they're going to give a shit because, like I said, this is pre-Rico. Right? They right. don't understand Rico they yet. They don't know what it is. So, so what? We're all together and we're talking. So what? Right. Mm -hmm. They don't get it because usually it's like you're busting soldiers. I didn't do anything. Oh, you know, and that that's kind of the mentality. Like Gotti and them knew about the feds. And yeah. didn't stop them though from talking. Yeah. And there was even a story where Gotti and the bull and those guys were out talking and uh, they saw a van with computers in it and stuff. And uh, they didn't know who they were or whatever. And they went over and started razzing them and beating on the van and stuff. And they're like, we're FBI, we're FBI. And Connie's like, oh, chill, guys. It's the FBI. <laughs> you know, that's like, oh, I thought you were a, like, I thought you were a problem. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the attitude. So, I, you know, even if they knew they were there with cameras, I don't know much would have changed. With the surveillance photos from Staten Island and the hours and hours of wiretap tapes, Giuliani decides that it's time to act. Castellano is arrested again, as well as the heads of all five major crime families. When the dust settles, Big Paul learns that a lot of the evidence brought against him has come from surveillance bugs in his own home. By all reports, he does not accept this news with a light heart. Posting the required $4 million bond, $2 million more than the last one, he immediately seeks to acquire the wiretap conversations from the Quack Quack bust. He demands these of his underboss, Delacroach. Delacroach is in a really tough spot now, but continues to stall. Castellano is relentless, however, 
and demands the tapes at every possible opportunity. Delacroach manages to delay the inevitable and eventually succumbs to cancer in December of 85, before having to betray his own captain. At some point, I just pictured Delacroach running out of ways to stall. So he's he's like in a room with Paul, and he's just like, So, Paul, you think we'll get uh, Ewing in the draft? And Paul's just like, Give me the damn wiretapes. I don't care if we get Ewing. In a minute. <laughs> he goes, after I take a leak, and then he crawls out that little square bathroom window, you know, he's like up there wiggling his way out. Yeah, it does seem like an extraordinarily long time that he put it off. Yeah. And maybe it's because it's Delacroach and he's got that look in his eye like he'll kill you, you know? Like, imagine pressuring Delaney to do something. Yeah, no, you know? no way. No way. You don't want to throw that I'm the boss thing around too many times around Delacroach. Yeah, no, he, no, you don't. It's like, are you? Well, then maybe that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the death of Delacroach causes more problems for Big Paul. The first problem is the funeral. Castellano approaches the service pragmatically, discerning that he can't show up at a known gangster's funeral when there's so much heat on him and the other mob bosses. He makes some effort to communicate this to Delacroach's crew, but they're not sympathetic. To not attend the funeral of such a respected and frankly loyal to a fault underboss is a slight that Gotti and company are not willing to overlook. Yeah, this was a really bad move, and uh, Castellano has a Trump thing going on at this point where, like, anything Trump does, everybody goes, ah, you know, that's, can you believe it? He could wear the wrong color tie now, and everybody freaks out. But uh, this is what he's got going on, and to make a mistake like this, he's like, I can't be seen there. Well, bullshit, you can't be seen there. You know, it, it's, it's, like I said, all the, he went from doing everything right to now I can't make a good decision to save my life, literally. Yeah. The next problem is the succession of the underboss position. Gotti figures he's the heir apparent, but in the typical Gambino fashion, surprises are in store. Paul Castellano elevates Thomas Bellotti to the position. So it's tough to say without deep diving into this and stuff, but the the general legend has it that Bellotti's kind of a half-wit and didn't deserve the promotion. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know, his history's being written by his detractors, you know what I mean? It's Gotti and them guys saying that he's an idiot and it should have been Gotti as the underboss, right? Uh, if you ask around now in the, with the with the time that's gone by, you don't hear too many guys that are qualified to have an opinion say, yeah, Gotti should have been the boss. You know, they're like, ah, we made him the boss, you know, but nobody's saying like, yeah, he should have been. So Bilotti's probably not as dumb as they want you to believe and things like that. I'd say the worst thing about Bilotti is he has got bad time. Yeah, because would Bilotti have put all of his conversations on tape like Gotti did? Well, I don't know. It, that's I don't even put that on people. Uh, they're bugging everything. They're bugging your kitchen table. They're bugging your toilet. Yeah. They used to go outside and lean on parking meters. They're bugging the parking meters. It's almost like if a guy's hiding in the bushes in the dark with a shotgun, you're going to get shot. Mm. So if there's a bug around every corner, you're going to get bugged. The one who was good at it, believe it or not, was the chin. Vinny the chin. Vinny the Chin. And we kind of we, uh, we kind of tease Vinny because of the, hey, Frank, this is for you. you know? yeah. <laughs> he botched that hit. But he is the leader of the Genevieve's family, and he is a fierce, mean guy. People are scared of him. Don't He's not a joke. He is not a joke. But you're not allowed to say his name, ever. Wow. And when you're talking about him, if I say, hey, this is coming from, I would touch my chin. 
right? You don't say his name. So he was pretty smart with that shit. Yeah. 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 Ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. Good name. Good thing his nickname wasn't Vinny the Ass. <laughs> to the Gotti crew, the appointment of Bellotti is a clear message that they're not respected in the hierarchy of the family. Further, it's only a matter of time before the contents of the wiretaps make their way to Castellano. They're in a dangerous situation and need to act fast. From Gotti's point of view, Paul Castellano has to go, but he'll need permission to kill a mob boss. Gotti puts out feelers to the commission to see their reaction to a Castellano hit. By the rules, hitting a family boss should be off limits, but only Castellano's longtime ally, the Genovese family, opposes the hit. Gotti figures four out of five ain't bad and decides to go forward with it. Apparently, Gotti felt like it's an internal beef. Right, yeah. So it's different than saying I'm going to hit a, you know, I'm going to hit a banano head and mm-hmm. the chin doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, he doesn't like it, but in the end of the day, it's our family. It's our local shit. And it's not going to, yeah. it's not going to stop. And four out of five ain't bad. It's not. Yeah. The murder of Big Paul Castellano. The hit on Paul Castellano has been on the horizon for a long time. It has to be meticulously planned. No room for error. John Gotti and Angelo Ruggiero solicit the help of Sammy the Bull Gravano and several others from the Gambino family. It's to be an inside job. A few possible plans are being debated when Frank DeChico tips off Gotti that both boss and underboss will be dining together shortly. It's December 16, 1985, around 5 p.m. in Midtown Manhattan. Paul Castellano is scheduled to have a meeting with several Gambino family members at Sparks Steakhouse. It's close to Christmas, and the street is literally packed with pedestrians. Gotti and his crew of assassins lie in wait. Teams of gunmen are posted at strategic points. Two shooters are on the side of Sparks, and two are across the street. Another two shooters are down the street a bit on both sides of the restaurant, respectively. Gotti and Gravano are surveilling the scene from their car, keeping in constant communication with their men via walkie-talkies. At 5.30 p.m., a Lincoln sedan pulls up in front of the steakhouse. It's driven by Thomas Bellotti, who has accompanied his boss, Castellano. Castellano, who's riding shotgun on the passenger side, opens his door, unsuspecting of what is about to unfold. Immediately, four gunmen in trench coats approach the car, and two of them open fire on the Gambino boss. Perhaps with the most fleeting awareness of his situation, Castellano is shot in the head twice, one bullet penetrating his brain. As his large frame falls to the ground, the assault continues. His body is racked with gunfire, convulsing and spasming as it slinks to the door's threshold his head finally resting on the floorboard of the Lincoln. In all, Big Paul is struck six times. His autopsy report will record gunshots to his head, brain, chest, pulmonary artery, lung, and abdomen. Bellotti doesn't fare much better, as the other two gunmen take him down with at least three quick shots. He spends the last seconds of his life lying on a cold concrete bed in a pool of his own blood. Without fanfare, the gunmen slip easily into the crowd of horrified onlookers and disappear. In all, in all probability, Gravano planned the hit. That's what he does, and that's why you bring him in, right? He's not always a trigger man, though he easily could be. But uh, he plans a hit and stuff, so 
this is to the, my best guess the way it went down. The cool thing is that Gravano just started a podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it just came out Wednesday and stuff. So he may actually detail this and tell you exactly how it went down, you know, which is pretty cool. But uh, he had suggested that the hit go down at a diner or like a coffee shop or something where just the two of them were going to be. And then they got this tip and the plan kind of changed and stuff. And they had enough time apparently to work this out. I watched the movie Gotti with John Travolta. And uh, I know Brett's wherever he is, he's reeling right now. Zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Zero percent. I was thinking since Brett didn't make it. (laughs) John, John, John. I should just like... I was thinking I should just like herald this movie and talk about how great it was. And it was a cinematic <laughs> masterpiece and stuff. So when Brett's listening to it in his car, he like puts his fist through the radio. <laughs> but uh, there was a scene where they're getting ready for the hit and stuff. And uh, Gotti's got everybody together for a briefing. And they're putting the trench coats on and stuff like that. And he's giving them these hats to wear. And he's like, everybody wear the hat. All they're going to see is hats, you know, and stuff. So I, I see no evidence that anybody was wearing a hat. <laughs> You know, in the real thing. And I've watched a lot of the news clips and stuff. And uh, the cool thing is when you see the newsreels is that it just happened and it's fresh. So it's kind of cool that way. But the other part of that is they don't really know anything and they're speculating, you Mm -hmm. know. So in one of the reports, a cop is saying that it was automatic gunfire. And uh, I don't think it was. I think it was just handgun fire. If there's only six. You know what I mean? Because it's all chaotic in the moment and stuff. So it was... It was cool. If you Google the YouTube stuff, there's a lot on this hit. Wait a So, Gravano, though, has his own show now? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's been on YouTube and stuff. And I, I would recommend people check it out. I love it. He's, he's a rat, you know, and people, some people don't want to glorify a rat, and they're just not going to watch him. And that's, you, know, you got to respect that. But he's a good guy when you listen to him, you know. And, like, you can hate ratting without hating the person, right? And uh, he's fun to listen to. He is. But... To that effect, I'll say this, for my money, Cayuchi is as good and as entertaining as Gravano, and he has got every bit as much stories. So if you don't like rats, <laughs> hey, Cayuchi's a viable alternative. And, well, uh, I was just asking because you said he started a show Wednesday. Yeah. Which yeah. was yesterday. His podcast. Which is the anniversary. Yesterday was the oh. anniversary. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yesterday was the anniversary. So possibly he did touch on this right and our original plan was that the podcast would be out before the anniversary and the timing was going to be so sweet but we all know how that worked out it didn't right wait how about these guys adapting on the fly they get this tip and then they're like they're ready to go there was a little bit of time and the uh the restaurant was a setup you know i mean by the time it started going they i think they kind of put this together i don't know in the in the john travolta Gotti movie (laughs) Two guys are like in the restaurant playing a business and stuff. And you, that, I doubt this happened. But he was saying like one guy kept saying, hey, when Paul gets here, when Paul gets here, when Paul gets here. And the other guy goes, Paul ain't going to make it. And the guy's like, oh, shit. You know, so the other thing, there's an account where uh, Gotti and Gravano drive by slowly to make sure he's dead. So the guys that shoot him, they disappear into the crowd. There's a witness that says they got into a dark car pretty quick. So they didn't just like stroll down the boulevard, right? The other thing you gotta remember is this is Christmas. It was crowded, right? There's people everywhere. It was it was a scene, you know? And that's where I think a lot of people, I almost cringe when I hear this. They're like, this is the biggest hit of all times. And then I just want to cringe. Yeah, it's not. Come on, there were bigger, better hits than this. Yeah. But I think it's, 
it was so public, a lot of people saw it, and a lot of people saw it on TV, and it wasn't that long ago. Right. Right, so it, it gets a lot of hype. You know, one thing about the Gotti movie, it's almost worthy of praise because it's it's impossible to get a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. And, <laughs> and yet here we are. They've done it. John Travolta's done the impossible. Is it so bad, Zach, that it's brilliant? <laughs> No. Plan nine from outer space. You're not going to pull that reverse (laughs) psych on me. When the dust settles, it's John Gotti who fills the empty seat he created. Although he manages to avoid execution and even takes the top spot, his reign is constantly beleaguered with legal problems, and eventually, despite the nickname Teflon Don, he's ultimately convicted in 1992 of multiple murders, including the hit on his former Gambino boss. This concludes the legend of Big Paul Castellano. So, the last big question. If Castellano doesn't kill Roy DeMeo, is he still alive? I think yes. Yes, he's still alive. No. Why do you say no? It's 2020. Oh, you're missing the point. Oh. (laughs) Shocking. He's saying, does Gotti even get the chance to kill him if... Castellano had If there's a DeMeo crew out DeMeo. there. Oh. Yeah. No. No way, because DeMeo is the guy, he would have been in the, in, the, in the school of thought that you don't kill a boss without unanimous approval, which Gotti didn't have. And DeMeo came up from the Castellano side. Right. So, right. I, I just think, no way, no way. There probably never would have been Teflon Don if he hadn't killed Roy. Right, and it's the kind of thing that pisses me off about this stuff. There's no reason to kill DeMeo, and we covered that before. Like, he thought he was going to rat, or he was the connection between... No indication of that. None. Yeah. None. He was not going to rat. And he was he, a straight gangster. Yeah, and he was your enforcement wing, or yeah. at least one, a major part of it and stuff. So I think it would have been okay. And, yeah, and now DeMeo's probably going to go to jail. Right. So there's that. But you know what? So is Castellano. They're all going to jail. And... uh we can talk about the penal implants. I don't want to. But, uh, and I do. We can talk about the disrespect and the missing the funerals and stuff. But at the end of the day, he's got Bellotti as an underboss. That sends a signal that Gotti and these guys are going to put, put on a shelf. They're going to be disbanded. He wanted Delacroche to do it. Delacroche passes away. You know, mm-hmm. He dies of cancer. Right. So it's over. And he intentionally put it off. He's like, this is something they can deal with when I'm gone. Because he probably knew how far he was as far as the cancer goes I the more I read about that the more I think he knew he just didn't want to deal with that shit he was pushing it off yeah for sure but once he was gone Gotti and these guys were going to be disbanded that was the whole bullshit drug thing he doesn't care about drugs you know but he wants Gotti to be poor he wants Gotti to be weakened he wants Gotti to be a pariah and stuff so Gotti did this out of preservation right and I, I they all do Right, and this is going to blow everybody up, but I don't think he was a good boss. I don't think he was intended to be a boss. Uh, he turned Sammy the Bull into a rat, almost single-handedly, you know, and uh, like you said, I don't know. He was just a charismatic guy who had a lot of street cred and that the whole family could get behind. Yeah, I think if you're sitting in a bar hanging out with Gotti, he's a great time. Yeah. But as a boss, don't, don't, didn't think he was that great, and... I don't think Castellano's a good boss, you know? No. And I'm stunned with how many people do, and they think he was such a great, you know, great guy. I'm just like, eh, you know, he was okay. If he hadn't been shut in like he was, he might have. The combination of uh, 
if he hadn't been shut in as long as he was and if he hadn't killed DeMeo, he would have lived a lot longer. Because I really think him shutting himself in his house cost him big time. Right, and there's always the dynamic between a gangster and a racketeer. Yeah. You know, and a lot of guys can't be both. You know, and he was definitely too far on one side, mm-hmm. where Dutch Schultz was too far on the other side. Stuff you need somebody in between. Yeah. So who would have been a good boss instead of Gotti? I don't know much about Bellotti, but it seems like Sammy the Bull. Mm-hmm. Could have been, you yeah. Know? And been. he says here I'm more of a gangster and stuff. But if you think about the way he planned things and stuff, and he did a lot of sit downs, and I've listened to more and more of his stories. Where he's a thinker and he can talk himself out of stuff and people like him and he can he can solve problems, you know, and not always by killing them, not always by killing them by any means. There's if you follow his story, there's a lot of times where he worked it out where he didn't have to kill him, and uh, I think he'd have been a good boss, you know. I think Gotti made a mess of things personally. Okay, I want to do a couple shout-outs. Uh, Ferrando Moreno, uh, just a guy I talk to a lot, value his opinion and stuff. And, uh, hey, thanks for the support and uh, kicking my ass into finally getting back here and getting this done. And uh, just a lot of other guys I talk to, the underboss, you know, I haven't talked to him a little bit, but just a good guy and uh, always value his opinion and stuff. Uh, looking forward to the uh, new year. Got some extra stuff planned, and it's, it's not going to – flag along like it has we're, we're gonna get tight and uh, got a lot of good ideas for the new year it's gonna be fun a lot of cool things happening don't forget you got ori spato's book you've got Kaiuchi's book a lot of cool things going on and uh yeah like i said check out gravano's thing i'm gonna shout out uh the show me and brett host uh, me and brett host a movie podcast called circle city cinema we're part of the running hook podcast network and you can find us under that label on any podcasts, wherever you get them, under the Running Hug Podcast Network, we're Circle City Cinema, so check us out. Somebody had mentioned, they're like, you know, you're a good promoter for everybody but you guys. <laughs> like, well, you know what? If I disappear for eight weeks, I want you guys to have something to do. <laughs> Can't leave you hanging. Yeah, by the time our next show comes out, we'll be through the holidays. So uh, take care of yourselves. Uh, Have a great Christmas, a happy new year, and uh, God bless you all. Bye. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin MacLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.